0: Welcome back to podcast number 17 in our series on American history. In podcast number 16, we looked at George Washington handed his greatest defeat that might have wiped out almost any other general in world history. But for him, because he was alive to fight another day, he learned a fantastic lesson that, again, as he had stated, the only way to lose the war was to try and win it. In the remainder of that podcast, we saw George Washington attempt to put those words into action or into reality. So he gave us that that serious win that he needed in that famous picture of Washington crossing the Delaware in the battle over uh, in Trenton, New Jersey. We then looked at the way he would then go on at the Battle of Princeton, leading on through eventually to the Battle of Saratoga, which of course would be the battle that Washington won that would give the indication to France that she can come in and assist the rebel side. That's what started stage two or phase two of the American Revolution, which eventually took them to the Battle of Yorktown where that was concluded on October 19th, 1781. But as I said before, both Washington and Lord Cornwallis, who clearly thought that they would be fighting again in early 1782, walked away from the battlefield ready to surrender for the to simmer down for the winter, the onset of winter, fully expecting to engage in battle come the following spring. And as we saw, that did not happen as parliament essentially refused to fund the war any longer. So as we begin podcast 17, that's what we're going to take a look at is the very brief phase three of the American revolution, which is the diplomatic phase. So from here, the peace of Paris will be negotiated throughout the summer of 1783 using the French as an intermediary between the demands of Great Britain as well as the demands of the Founding Fathers leading that rebel army. When it was finally signed again in the hotel that is still there in Paris, France, on September 3rd 1783 it was agreed that the United States would be free, independent, and sovereign. The United States would also have all land from modern day southern border of Georgia into Florida, that southern border of Georgia, to the Canadian border. Please note that's at this time, Spain still owns the entire Floridian Peninsula, as well as all of the territory around the Gulf of Mexico. It's part of the reason why today Florida has that panhandle that sticks out so far to the west. At one time, that panhandle connected up to the state of Texas. All of that was, again, Spanish territory. So that's the land that she has, But I want to put that into some hard numbers here and to see that in some cases, I want you to see how the British were in some cases setting up a trap for the newly founded American diplomats. Consider that again, the total land area of the 13 colonies, now to be soon independent 13 states, is 348,000 square miles. And that's what the Americans were demanding. However, Britain said, not only going to get that 348,000 square miles, I'm going to give you just a little bit more than that, heading out west. And in the final sum, which left the founding fathers speechless, the likes of John Jay and Benjamin Franklin and John Adams, speechless, is the fact that when it was finally calculated out, the British were actually handing over to the Americans 900,000 square miles. Practically three times the amount that the Americans were demanding. And that's significant because remember, as I also stated in an earlier podcasts on American history, just because somebody owns it and has their flag there, that doesn't mean that any other intervening power looks at that flag and says, oh, shucks, this land's been spoken for. Somebody owns it. Yep, turn around, head back. We'll find some other land that we can colonize. No. Oh. You can put your flag there all you want. But if you don't have a soldier or group of soldiers to defend that flag, then that territory was up for grabs. And that's what the British were doing. They were attempting to string the Americans out militarily, literally right from the get-go, right from the beginning. Because to own the territory is one thing. To defend it is entirely something else. More about that in future podcasts. In terms of wrapping this up this is the first time that I'm going to be providing casualties especially always of the American side but of course also for wood numbers that we know is to be accurate what the casualties were on the enemy that we were fighting at the time Britain lost 20,000 it is generally agreed upon while the Americans lost 25,000 so 25,000 if you stay with me for these broadca- podcasts on mili- uh, American history, I will eventually tell you the number of American soldiers killed and wounded in battle all the way up through to the War on Terror. It is something that students that take me for back-to-back American history classes often are amazed by the way the numbers continue to ratchet up until eventually we get to the last day of class when i bring an update on where we're at with the war on terror as for the remaining loyalists that were roughly a third of the rebel po- uh, the third of the british population well great britain what are you going to do for them not much because the more the british wants america to take care of them the higher the demands that the rebels are going to put on Great Britain. So essentially, Great Britain washed her hands of the loyalists, literally turned her backs on them. Essentially, thanks for supporting us. Too bad it didn't work out, maybe next time. That's part of the reason why in our very, very opening early days in American history, we actually had a massive emigration, not immigration. I know America is generally and mythically believed that was a country that from our very origin, more people wanted to come in than ever wanted to go out. That technically is not true. Once the British had signed this papers of surrender, there was a mass of thousands of British loyalists that wanted to return back to the home country or to another colony elsewhere. But they did not want to stay in a newly independent country. Please consider this. Look at what you're asking of them. The world's, again, to summarize, the world's most powerful navy and army is sailing away or moving north or both for the final time. What is this new ragtag army with nothing to speak of of a navy? How is that going to protect your life and land and assets, right? How about the world's most respected economy and respected currency, the British pound? That also sailed away. The founding fathers didn't have an answer for what our new currency, with the future of our current currency that was created just a couple of years ago. What economic system are we going to have? What political system? Those were nothing but question marks. Hey, we can only do one thing at a time. Either we fight the British or we try to plan for our future. You can't do both. There's limited resources, limited lives, limited everything. So you have to fight and get rid of the enemy first. Then you can turn your attention on what do we do now going forward? Well, those massive question marks didn't settle well for the loyalists. So many fled the colonies, now states, back to the economy and the military that they were used to and had confidence in. What about George Washington though? and the Revolutionary Army. Well, George Washington was invited and reluctantly accepted, as he was not necessarily what we would call today a social butterfly in any sense of the word, to attend a dance and formal dinner on the evening of 20, December 22nd at the Maryland State House in Annapolis, Maryland where he had the opportunity to dance with every woman who wished to have at least one dance with the great commander. It was somewhat of a fitting ending to the American Revolution. However, all of the business that revolved around the revolution was not concluded by the end of that evening on December 22nd. The next morning, George Washington went back to the State House where at the invitation of the Founding Fathers, he briefly addressed the gentlemen in that room. Very few had any idea what George Washington might do at that meeting In that at that particular morning. Was he going to ask to stay on as full commander? Was he going to demand it? By and large, ladies and gentlemen, there wasn't anything George Washington was gonna ask for that they were not about to give him. You see, we have to remember that George Washington left Mount Vernon in April of 1775 as largely an unknown man and a mediocre officer in the British Army. But he left Mount Vernon in April of 75 because he was angry that the British were beginning to negatively impact him financially, and he was going to straighten that record. He rose to prominence, as we know, in his role in the Revolutionary Army to top commander. But by December of 1783, after 100 years of the great European powers individually and collectively trying to defeat Great Britain, which never happened, George Washington did that. Great Britain flushed through five generals trying to defeat George Washington. The Founding Fathers and the Rebel Army only had one top commander, the entire war, George Washington. So by December of 1783, there wasn't a printing press anywhere in the world that was not printing out the name George Washington. He left in April of 75 as an unknown. By December of 1783, he was arguably the most famous man in the world. So what did he want in terms of business on that morning of December 23rd? No one knew. But after giving a short summary of the impact that the army had, Washington had one command, one demand, that he was placing on the Founding Fathers that every one of his soldiers receives the back pay that is due them. Every widow that lost a soldier, that lost their husband in a heroic battle against Great Britain also be financially taken care of. As for Washington himself, what did he demand for himself? Not a thing. Rather, he reached into his pocket and unfolded a piece of parchment and turned turned to the President of the Congress, Thomas Mifflin, and handed him his surrender papers. This is why, ladies and gentlemen, Washington was so unbelievably popular, even after the Revolution came to a close. The man that was given all the power that that rebellious army had, he knowingly and on his own gave all of that power right back after he needed it and the objectives were met. And to top it off, if that was not honorable enough, Washington then nodded to Congress President Thomas Mifflin, looked at every other founding father in that room, and had the audacity to say, and thank you, all of you, for the opportunity to serve. Imagine that. He is thanking them for his opportunity to serve. A man that had risked everything for eight years had two horses shot out from under him, and he's thanking them. It's the reason why, from the few testimonials that we have of the business that was done that morning, that there was not one dry eye from any of those men when Washington departed the Statehouse got onto his horse, and took the roughly 45-mile ride to his beloved Mount Vernon to be with his beloved wife, where he arrived before nightfall on Christmas Eve. This, ladies and gentlemen, believe it or not, is not even Washington's finest hour. And in some cases, it is only beginning. But if we could ask George Washington at the time that he was leaving, If we could have got a hold of one of those future pesky journalists who always wants to shove a microphone in a politician or military individual's face at the wrong time, in the wrong place, and ask him, what do you think your legacy will be? It would be no surprise that Washington would say, isn't it obvious? I fought with what I had, but it will never be considered anything of heroic proportions because he never had the army to fight in the way that he had been trained and to to fight in block formation with the standard issue uniform and all the standard protocols that was never provided to him. There was nothing he could do. He took pot shots, almost every opportunity he had and thought that that negatively is the reason why he would go down in history again in a negative vein versus a positive one. So let's then, moving away from the revolution As we concluded the third phase, and the American Revolution, of course, itself is done. Please know, ladies and gentlemen, and obviously, you know, I mean, you know this, but just a reminder that when I covered this in the past several podcasts, there are classes at the college level that focus just on some aspects of the American Revolution alone. This does not in any way pretend to cover every nuance of the American Revolution, nor can it, as any book can or any college or graduate class can. But what I'm simply highlighting are the parts of the American Revolution that would sow the seeds for a future American society that I will eventually draw my way back to in our 244th year as of 2020. So in terms of the impact of of war on society, we're going to look at a couple of groups of people. First off, how did the women fare? Well, they became more prominent. On the home front than they had ever been had the opportunity to do so before they became and they became involved in supportive war efforts. And before you roll your eyes and say, I know, yeah, I've read that, Chris, that they, you know, helped in you know, sewing clothes and patching holes in shoes, etc." Yes, that is all true. But I'm also talking about women that also risked their lives in the creation of what became known as one of America's earliest signal systems for the American military. Washington and his aide-de-camp Alexander Hamilton knew how to, to inform their scouts that if at any point they are scouting out where a British army might be, either that they have to stay away from because they're not prepared to fight or would like to engage in because they're ready to fight that if they ever came across a particular homestead, think the typical homestead of, say, Little House on the Prairie, which, of course, is dating me and saying that I saw that as a kid. Uh, But nevertheless, think of that traditional homestead. And if a woman was hanging clothes on a couple of clotheslines, and if all of the clothing or articles of clothing on one particular line was red or shades of red, That meant drawing the line in that direction is where the American rebels could find British soldiers. If there was white clothing pointing in a different direction, then that way, to the best that she had been able to ascertain, was safe to travel. Yes, it was one of America's earliest engagements of what we call the future of the American Signal Corps system. And thanks, ladies, to the courage that you had. To provide that extremely relevant information in terms of african and native americans african americans fought alongside the rebels literally between six and twelve percent they had made up of the entire fighting force and the american rebels had no problem fighting with a soldier alongside them that was of a different skin color sadly the next time the american an american soldier will fight alongside A soldier of a different skin color will not be seen again until the Korean War. It has been mythically said that the War of Independence exacerbated the ban on slavery. I ask you one question. Where? Well, yeah, those Northeast colonies. Well, those Northeast colonies never engaged in the level of slavery that the Southern colonies did. It didn't exacerbate it in any direction. The differences, however, speaking of slavery, between the North and South sharply emerged as a result of the conclusion of the American Revolution that we'll discuss in future podcasts. In terms of the Native Americans, fight alongside us, the rebels and the Founding Fathers said, and you will have a say in the way this land is divvied up that we eventually hope to win from the Kingdom of Great Britain and that conversation never took place. There was not one Native American present in any of the meetings that took place in Paris in the third phase of the American Revolution. So, of course, the natives were enraged at having their land stolen and also traded from under them. Another aspect that we take a look at is the economy. Yes, we already talked about the creation of the continental dollar, But from its very beginning, nothing has changed by 1783. The continental dollar essentially was deemed worthless by almost every foreign power. Inflation, the idea of dollars chasing too few, too many dollars chasing too few goods, inflation skyrocketed naturally as a result of the war-torn economy. And the United States had a massive war debt to pay We owed our own soldiers. We also owed France. As I said before, yes, she came to our assistance. That didn't mean she sailed away without leaving a bill. And that U.S. war debt at that time was $57 million. Translating that to 21st century dollars, that United States Revolution cost us roughly $2.4 billion. And finally, another aspect to take a look at is, speaking of our foreign neighbors on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, would be our relationship in what becomes known as international relations. Yes, the United States now was essentially the new kid on the block, but we did have a massive amount of land under our feet. We had now joined Spain, Portugal. France, the Netherlands, and England as a country, one of literally just a handful, that by 1800 will own 35% of all land on earth. Remember that the world is 70% made up of water, leaving 30% something that we can stand on and dry off of. 35% of that 30% will fall under the flags of just a few countries, Europe plus the United States. Keep your ears peeled as that number, as I discuss that number and how it goes up, and as a sneak preview to give you an idea where the gobbling up of land eventually will take the world powers, by 1914, Europe and the United States together will occupy 84% of all land on earth. 84% of all land is only being, has a flag from only a handful of countries. And if you try to rationalize that, say, well, at least 16% for the rest of the world, think again, because 7.9% of that land is locked up under a constant sheet of ice on the southern parts of our planet that Europe has no interest in. That leaves 8.1% for the rest of the world to do what they want with. Notice I said that that 84% was achieved in what year? 1914? And what was that the year that started? You got it. World War I. Any surprise there? Stick with me when we get to the podcast of World War One, and you'll never look at that war the same way again. Last part is to about the American Revolution is to engage in a quick discussion of what we talk about the theor- theoretical origins of the American Revolution. First off, and just cover these briefly, was the ripe fruit theory. Mind you, these are the actual names for the, the theories. This is not something that I'm paraphrasing. The ripe fruit theory is that the colonists were self-sufficient, therefore just grew apart from Great Britain. There was also the bad king theory, the fact that we know that George III had serious health problems and seemed to be more antagonistic to the British North American colonies than he was elsewhere and therefore directed anti-colonial policies against them. There's also the political theory, that the colonists simply felt discriminated against. No representation, they were done with that. And finally, the cultural divergence theory. The colonies no longer were a mirror image of England. Well, any surprise, consider the differences of the average colonist versus their British counterpart. By 1776, several generations of British Americans were twice as likely to survive to adulthood. They would be 50% richer. Physically, they would be far healthier and on average, two inches taller. So the cultural divergence theory is one of the four that also has a lot of merit to it. Of the four, again, the ripe fruit, bad king, political, as well as the cultural divergence theory. So we end this podcast and end the American Revolution now as officially the states of America. Yes, let me repeat that, the states of America. Am I forgetting a word there? Go ahead, correct me. Yeah, you're saying, Chris, you're not saying United. Exactly. Because as of 1783, New Year's Eve into 1784, we were the states of America. But United was the last thing that we were. More about that when we begin the next podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsolid.com, and email me with any questions you might have or book recommendations. If you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.